0: Thanks for tuning in to this special episode of Mission Daily. Mission recently launched Hidden in Plain Sight, a brand new podcast that finds the hidden stories in the data that surrounds us. Hidden in Plain Sight was sponsored by our friends at Splunk and we are super excited to share that their executive team will be joining us for a few episodes of Mission Daily. Today's interview is with Monzi Mirza, who is Vice President and Head of Security Research at Splunk. Monzi joins us to discuss how he thinks about protecting data and privacy in the digital age different mentors and leaders he has learned from throughout his early education and career, as well as various emerging economies and the opportunities they present for people today. Enjoy! And to find out more about Splunk and our new show, Hidden in Plain Sight, check the links in our show notes. Mission Daily is created by our team at mission.org. Monzi, welcome to the show.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. We're looking forward to this discussion.
0: Same here. So, when people ask you your name, your role, your title uh, at Splunk, how do you answer that?
1: My name is Monzi Merza. My role at Splunk is uh, vice president of security research.
0: And uh, when did you join Splunk?
1: I've been at Splunk for eight years and a little over a quarter.
0: It's definitely an exciting time in the you know the history of cybersecurity and software and te- in technology at large. Would you say that software security and real world safety are something that your clients and the industry is thinking more about these days?
1: Yes, everybody's thinking more about these days. I think what's what's interesting is the way in which it is being internalized and how people are thinking about it. And, and yeah, it's it's a top of mind conversation. And there's there's such a high sort of interconnectivity and dependency of, of connected things. Uh, or connected systems and so, so software security, hardware security, safety, all of these things are starting to intertwine and, and all of these uh, all of these things are, are important considerations for our customers.
0: With so many objects being connected now that increases uh, our vulnerability to cyber attacks and things of that nature, how do you personally think about uh, protecting yourself, your data, and your privacy in a world where everything's connected?
1: I tend to even though you know I'm generally paranoid individual from a security point of view I tend to look at the the landscape really from a position of of great optimism in the sense that I I think uh, we have now and by we I just mean as a broader community have have a lot of, ha, have more understanding today about how systems work than we did, say, 15 years ago, or have have a better sort of maturity from the social aspects of how things become connected and what the ramifications of some of these things are. And it's not to suggest that these are solved problems, but I'm just saying that there is a sense of maturity around it. And I think the opportunity really is, it's not about sort of locking things down and blocking stuff. It's, it's really about enabling us to do more things as human beings to so that we can do more things, we can take more advantage of technology. Uh, really, so that we can raise our quality of life, or we can connect with each other at a human level uh, in, in a more engaging experience. So I, I feel, I mean, that's a, that's sort of the optimism lens that I uh, that I put on that. Um, and then of course there is a tactical bits around around how do we make security. Uh, and security practices or software or hardware or, or the, all of this interconnectivity more secure um, and uh, in, in, in an environment where these are enabling uh, technologies for human beings and also how do we how do we manage these aspects of security and data collection and and sort of data leveraging in a responsible fashion so we are so we're not sort of trouncing on human beings' ability uh, to, to be free or, or to be able to express themselves.
0: I think that's the, uh, one of the largest challenges that we face as a culture right now. How are you thinking about that uh, at a local level when you're building the culture on your teams or uh, when you're contributing to the overall culture uh, inside Splunk?
1: Splunk has had a, a sort of values argument. Actually, there is a Splunk values page that has been there for as long as I can remember that I've been at Splunk. And and that values page for Splunk says, you know, Splunkers are innovative, they're disruptive, they're open, they're transparent. You know, fun is actually a listed Splunk value in that list as well. So we we approach we approach these and and, and that and they're not just they're not just labels for us we always talk about you know who are we serving what why are we doing something and who is the human being at the end of of this work you know so it's it's not just about bits and bytes and technologies it's about we're doing this for a person or a group of people and and i think when we have that sort of a strong root and a fundamental sense of that this is about people and this is about us as a community, it kind of sounds like ridiculous. They're like, well, oh, these are just cheesy sound bites. And, but, but, but they're not, I mean, this, we have these discussions, like who are we going to serve as a consequence of doing X in this print? And who's going whose life is going to improve? And, and, and so much so that we literally have conversations internally to say, you know, who's really want to come up to you and want to give you a hug at dot com because you're going to put that feature in, uh, or you're going to do something better for them. So, I mean, we really do talk in those terms. And I think as a consequence it drives us to, to create Amazing things for and to to really to really delight our customers and it also enables us to to be rooted and gives us that sense of responsibility that we have to do we have to do the right thing as well.
0: And uh, would you say that your goal or one of your many goals is to give people more free time?
1: What I would say is we want to give people the ability to, to improve their lives or give them the opportunity so that they can engage with each other more. If that means that they will have more free time, then then that's great. If that means that they will have less free time, but they will end up spending their time in more engaging things, then yeah. And, and so yeah, free is free is a part of it, but I think free is a contributing factor.
0: Especially with tools like technologies where they help augment us, uh, but it's up to us to choose in which ways they'll augment us. Um, I think that's fascinating. So. I think this is a good segue to talk about your background and uh, maybe some of your inspirations and mentors early in your career. So you studied at the University of New Mexico, and I would love to start there. And, uh, you know, was there anything specific you learned there about psychology or computer science? Any big lessons that you still use today?
1: My sort of education has been has been very meandering. Uh, I was I it, it feels like there are times I was ahead of quote unquote the average and that at times I was behind the average uh, throughout my and and this is true for my career as well as my education like and, and the reason I'll give you a couple of concrete examples so when i um, I'm an immigrant to the United States, my whole family moved there uh, when I was in high school i I actually when I graduated from high school i was I was almost a sophomore in college because of college credits uh, because of taking advanced placement courses as well as because my entire high school summers, you know, for the three and a half, four years, were were usually spent at a junior college taking, you know, uh, advanced courses in a number of things, including philosophy and ma- and, uh, and mathematics, and and so so that's kind of that's kind of where I started. But then I got out, and then I dropped out of college, and I started my own little business, and I'm you know uh, doing a bunch of different random things, including you know spamming people with faxes to uh, to give them coupons for restaurants or something, you know, and I did some web development work. And, and, and then I, I really didn't finish college until 2010. And, uh, and at that time in, in 2010, I was I was actually running some pretty significant programs already professionally uh, in you know for the U.S. government where in the organization where I was working. So it was kind of an upside down thing uh, in the eyes of many people. So yeah, I mean when I went to college, sure, I, I, you know I've, I've been to like four or five different colleges and universities um, and. And I did learn a lot of different things. I changed majors, like, I don't know how many times, and collecting credits and lots of different things, ultimately uh, finishing up with a computer science uh, minor and a a major in psychology, focusing on uh, a lot of lab research work. And um, so, yeah, I mean, that really, that defines a lot of what I did. But, um, you know, outside of education, my mentors are sometimes sort of unusual, like, um, one of my mentors is actually a diplomat in the European or was a diplomat in the European union. And I just kind of happened to run into him. And, and, and so, you know, we keep in touch and we talk and stuff. So it's, I was always fortunate to talk to people and, and engage with people who were very different than me. Um, Another one of my, another one of my mentors, he's kind of like my older brother, but he's, you know, he's like 30 years older than me, and he was associated with a with a spiritual organization, very different than the belief system that I grew up into. But I learned a lot from him as as, as well in terms of how he operates in a community and how he thinks through his community. So, yeah, I mean, it's the it's that rootedness in human beings, and it's the idea of serving others uh, that that is really embedded in me. I mean, my I studied jujitsu for a long time and practiced jujitsu, and 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 our sensei always was focused on the purpose of life is to serve, and and to serve others and to leave the world a better place than how you found it, and and so those are the kinds of things that that really drive who I am as a person, and that that I'm at least I feel I can impart a little bit of that on my teams, and I think my teams operate, and a lot of Splunk or teams or operate in a very similar uh, in a similar rootedness.
0: And do you think that that meandering experience uh, taught you to trust your intuition uh, and trust your gut more, um, or how would you describe that?
1: I think the meandering, it, it's, it's, I, I don't know if I would say I would trust my gut more. I think my, if anything, my, my, my meandering is fraught with all sorts of interesting errors. Uh, but I, the thing that it did teach me was that volatility is, is good. And there is power in diversity in, in terms of the diversity of people and diversity of, of, of interaction and, and that, there is, that there is value in work, regardless of the work. I mean, I've, I have worked as a dishwasher. I worked as a janitor. I, I tutored algebra. I worked, at, I worked at, you know, super secret squirrel programs. I've, I, I feel now having gone through a lot of that for me, work has value unto itself beyond any kind of label that gets put on it. And I think that, that for me is a big deal. And I think as now as a leader in the company at, at, at Splunk and, and now having, now, you know, having the opportunity to mentor a few people, my, a couple of people myself, I feel like that is something that is the most important lesson learned for me.
0: Do you have any advice for young people who are thinking about uh, their careers and who are thinking about, that sounds great, but how do I get started uh, having those experiences, um, especially for very young people? I think it can be challenging. Uh, any advice there?
1: I get that question actually quite often from students or from just people that I that I talk to, even my nieces and nephews. And the, I use sort of a kind of a goofy example. I mean, it's is is that if you like to swim, there's really only one way to do it: is to start swimming. And 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 so. There is really no right or wrong way. You got to get in the water, and 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 so so that's that's what I that's what I suggest to people. I just ask them like, what is what is the one thing that they that that they do want to do, or, or what are the seventeen things that they want to do? Maybe they have they, they have a jumble in their mind. Just just pick one, and and then go after it. And then until did you go after it and invest some energy into it? One is not going to discover whether that is something that is enjoyable or fun or not. Um, and and that's the only way to do it. So I, I, I encourage people not to overthink some of these things too much and, and 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 follow and follow their heart or follow their passion and do it. And especially to my nieces and nephews and, and also to a lot of the students that I speak with, I I always tell them is what put your heart and soul into whatever it is that you're doing, even if you know even if you believe that you're not going to make a lot of money doing it or somebody doesn't think that that's the most constructive career choice. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. Um, and, and, and my youngest brother, my youngest brother is, is, is significantly younger than me. He's like, he's almost 19 years younger than me. Uh, he, he thought he, he got me one time. He said, you know, but what if I said my favorite thing to do was dig ditches? You know, would, would you say that would, that was a good thing that I should go after? I said, why not? Because you might learn a lot about excavation, about the types of soils there are, and you, you know, maybe you'll hit gold doing that, or oil, or, or you may become such an expert that when somebody needs a certain kind of uh, a tunnel to be made, they'll come look, ask you for help because you understand how soils work. And So it doesn't matter what you do. I feel I just tell people, you know, do whatever you, you want to do, but really put your heart and soul into it and, and, and just go after it.
0: And I think that's great advice at the current juncture in our history and and time right now because there are so many new emerging jobs from data, from technology, from software. These fields are exploding. And what's really exciting is there are new careers that are uh, evolving so rapidly that there's a lot of opportunity there. So I would love to hear you describe some of these new careers, whether it's influencer marketing or smart car engineers, VR developers, you know, fields and robotics are opening up. What opportunities do you see there for young people or anyone for that matter?
1: I think there is, there's so many different opportunities. I think the root of, of these opportunities, if we think about it is at least the way I internalize it is if you think through a little bit through the history of time uh, and, and really uplifting hu- human experiences and human lifestyles, they happen at the, at the intersection of what the Eric team describes as an instrument in, in that, whether it's a microscope or a telescope or whether it's some kind of a measuring stick or so there is there's usually some sort of an instrument involved that allows you to inspect or allows you to measure or allows you to see, uh, you know, in, in terms of data, we say you know, visibility of, of data so you can see data and an instrument allows you to do that as soon as I feel like you have an instrument that allows you to see something or to do something. It creates a lot of opportunity for people to then tinker with whatever it is the thing that the instrument produces. I mean in, in the biological sciences if you say you know, what did the microscope do or, or, or in or in computer science you think about I mean, what what did the computer enable really us to to create or do or to produce just by the fact that we had an instrument that that could the processor could you know add things or you know just turn things on and on we had a transistor it was an instrument and, and it allows us to do things. So I think that's the, that's the core point. So now the question is, well, we have like this abundance of instruments and, and whether it's social media as an instrument or whether it's mo- mobile devices as an instrument or whether it's data as an instrument, now that people have access. So that's the second piece. You have to have an instrument, you have to have some kind of access. And you know, you, on, on the one side, you can say the gig economy was one of the first uh, things that started happening as a consequence of having mobile and internet connectivity on mobile devices. Um, And so influencing marketing is nothing if it's like you don't have to be a computer scientist or a super geek to be an influencer You are passionate about something and you're influencing something Uh, in terms of when it comes to understanding things Around cars, or around, or or even around farming. As, I mean, just imagine having a mobile phone in your hand and being able to walk up to say, you know, what kind of disease does a certain plant have, and and you can use sort of a VR experience where, um, you, you know, you can you can move your mobile device over the plant and it can identify what kind of plant it is. It can look at the sort of physical features of of what that is, and that's that's enabling somebody to to do a to do a job or to or, or to move something forward. So I think there is. There's lots and lots of examples of these of these things. I mean, we can probably spend a lot of time talking about. It if you want to go into more detail about concrete examples, but it's just the abundance of these instruments now make it make it easier for people to create new opportunities for themselves, and I think it creates new economies as as a as a consequence. Um, there's probably new economies that we haven't thought about yet that that will emerge because the. Because there's more and more opportunities now for people to engage with each other and people are the ones who create who create things for each other to serve each other or to, or to have experiences.
0: And I think what's interesting about these new economies is uh, you know, when we start to use some of these tools and we start to stack up these tools on top of each other, whether it's Splunk or any other technology product uh, that you might have in your stack, you can do more and more and it kind of compounds over time because these tools are evolving with you. And they can evolve with the instruments that your company or your team is building. I'm curious to hear, are, you know, if there are any specific examples of uh, customer use cases or you know use cases you see right now for Splunk that are kind of emergent and uh, atypical, but very exciting. Uh, I would love to hear some about um, yeah concrete use cases.
1: There's a few. I mean, I'll, I'll give you an old example, and you may have heard this one from from others. Blunkers. It's sort of a side effects data analysis example where um, we had a we ha- we have a customer, or we had a, at, at that time this particular customer in Japan um, was um, was a building operator, and and they had they or, or excuse me a real estate uh, m- a management company that. Operated lots of different buildings and high, and high rises. And uh, one of their biggest sort of business problems was to, to predict uh, building occupancy because that's a bread and butter. But it's not like you can just sort of go up to a business and say, hey, so what do you think? Is your business growing or is your business falling or do you think you're going to need more space next week or less space next week? Like, how do you do that? The way they used data was they started measuring uh, elevator movements and they had a very simple hypothesis, where, which was, if an elevator stops a lot on a given floor, that means that that business has a lot of activity. And, and so that business is most likely growing. And if the number of stops on that floor is starting to decline, that means the business is not going so, so well. So I think we can all sort of intuitively understand that that hypothesis probably works. And, and so they use that to predict the, the occupancy rates and to predict how certain things are gonna grow or certain people are not gonna renew their leases. So that's kind of a really oddball kind of a case that one wouldn't think to use building control systems or elevator control systems data to predict business outcomes. Usually that data is just looked upon as is just an elevator, and we're just trying to do you know predictive maintenance on the elevator, and, and that that would be considered. Oh my god, that's a pretty interesting use case because we don't want the elevator to break or something to be damaged or get stuck or something. But here's a business, very concrete business outcome.
0: I would be curious to know, you know, how difficult is it for a business that is uh, listening right now who says that sounds great, but what type of internal engineering team do I need in order to be able to deploy a solution like that, uh, or? you know, implement their own idea? Is there any type of, uh, you know, range or estimate you can provide about how big a technical team you need to deploy a solution like that?
1: I feel the biggest thing is to understand the core issue here. The core issue was not that, that there was a building control manager who intuitively had some interesting idea and, and then somehow magically navigated around the technology problem to create some outcome. There was data, there was an instrument, there was visibility that existed. That there was this, op- the data was being collected somewhere, and we said data is the currency that's going to help us address something. And then what we did was we applied an instrument. In this case, the instrument happens to be Splunk, and on that data, and, and then we produced the outcome. The core issue here is also that you essentially kind of made it okay for people to analyze data, to share, to share the data, so that multiple people with their own intuitions and with their own ideas can look at it and say oh i have a way to inspect elevator data which is from a from a from a business manager point of view whereas elevator data historically may have belonged to to the building control systems people or to the building managers or maybe not even that maybe to the company who installed the elevators and the business probably never got to see their their elevator data so i think i think the question is not here to for me is how hard is it The hardest thing in this is not technology. The hardest thing in this is the mindset to say that we're going to open access to the data so that people know that they have access to it and that they can start to apply their intuition. Then we get to the technology problem. Somebody says, no, 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 Manzi, you're cheating because you've kind of skirted the, 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 the technical difficulty question here. So here's how I break down the technical difficulty question. Ultimately, I feel that people really have three kinds of problems in terms of technology usage. The first problem is, they don't necessarily, they're not domain experts, so they don't know what to look for or, or what to do with a, with, with a particular piece of data, for example. And forget about Splunk or any other technology. They just, they're, they're not domain experts, they may not, or they, they don't have a intellectual curiosity, and so therefore they don't even know what to ask or what to do, so that's problem number one. Problem number two is if somebody does have intellectual curiosity or, or domain expertise, And it's really important to to tease those two pieces apart because the experts are not always the ones who create good solutions. There's there's plenty of examples of non-experts creating exceptional solutions. And, and, and And the second piece then is how to do or how to exert that intellectual curiosity or that question that a domain expert has. And that's where the technological use comes into play. And then the third piece is when you do that sort of experiment or that data experiment or that measurement of something, what do you do next? And that oftentimes is a business process problem that people need a path to that they've learned something and now they're going to now they're going to enact that or now they feel empowered, or now they can go to somebody who can say, look at what I found. And this has value. So all those three things have to exist. You have to have intellectual curiosity. You have to have a mechanism to interface with the tool. And you have to have a business process that gives people the opportunity to come forward and say, I learned something interesting. Look at what I can do. We zero it in to Splunk. And we say, well, what does in the middle piece on the, on the how to do or how to exert your intuition? Splunk has a couple of different things. One, the way Splunk operates as a technology, the Splunk Enterprise technology at the very base layer is built like a search engine, and at a very base layer also assumes the fact that data is not organized, that data is not structured, assumes that people don't know what questions they might ask in the future, or, and, or, and assumes that people don't know what new data they might need. So now we have this platform that you can arbitrarily have it ingest any kind of data or analyze any kind of data, um, using just string matches or simple keywords And then on top of that, so that somebody can just get started. Um, And then there's other technologies that we put in place to to automatically make suggestions and recommendations and to summarize things automatically and to do pattern matching and identify patterns automatically to assist that sort of discovery learning learning process. So, and we keep doing more and more to make that more and more easier by way of putting out examples or having specific solutions or guided tours that so people can see and publishing examples on our website. So that's how I would answer, sorry, it's a very long-winded answer, but that's the way I, I sort of rationalize that.
0: No, I really appreciate it. I think that type of uh, mental model and framework is useful for uh, any organization that's thinking about, you know, doing anything strategics or long-term focus. So that's, uh, that's exciting. Um, are there any type of guided examples that you feel are um, particularly compelling introductions into use cases or uh, training or any features that are kind of new and exciting?
1: So in the security space in particular, this is near and dear to my heart. And this is where I, you know, things I dream about at night to make people's lives easier is uh, Splunk has two big things. So the one, the first one is, is a app that we call Splunk for Security Essentials and or Splunk Security Essentials. And the idea behind Security Essentials is, is the, at the very core is to, is, to, is to say, you wanna learn about security and you wanna learn about Splunk and you wanna learn about data analysis, let us give you this journey that you can walk through, including examples, including data samples that you can start to explore for yourself and there's a lot of detail in how that particular product works and, and, and what it does. Then also what we created was these things that we call content updates that somebody can put into their environment to detect, investigate, or respond to threats so that they can say, well, okay, you know, I'm, I wasn't born knowing what a particular type of threat footprint is like or what lateral movement is as an example of a kind of, uh, of a threat actor activity, but we sort of compose that together so that people can consume it, but not just bits and bytes, but explanations and mappings so that anyone can sort of pick it up and, and extend that or, or just execute on it and, and learn as a consequence of that. And then the last thing that we do, which is, I kind of say last just in order, but I think it has huge value, is, is is Splunk has created this, or has, is, has this privilege of having this amazing community of Splunkers. And so we have answers.splunk.com, for example, where anybody can go in and ask any kind of question. And then there's Splunk engineers or other members of the community, which is a very, very strong community. I mean, if you've never been to .conf, I invite everybody in the world to come to .conf. It's an amazing experience because the Splunk community shows up to .conf. It's an event for the Splunk community to interact and interface at sort of this annual gathering to exchange ideas and talk and customers do the presentations. It's it is like quite the opposite of a vendor conference. It's more like a it's more like I would say like a hacker maker convention than it is a than it is a vendor conference uh, so people can learn and grow from there. And so, th- so those are like a number of different things that that we that we do and cultivate that really ultimately goes back to our value system as, as Splunk as a company. Uh, that, that, you know, the openness and transparency and the fun and the innovation and the disruption. And that's how we're going to bring all of that together is, is by interfacing with our community. So we have the tactical bits and then we have sort of the broader elements to, to back that up. I mean, even our documentation, we're probably one of the few companies in the world whose documentation and APIs are completely open to the world. Like we can just download it and you can see it and you can do all those things with it, but without a lot of effort.
0: And, uh, Monty, I'm, Curious to know, when you're recruiting, talking with uh, Splunkers, what's the uh, formal education experience like of those folks? Is it uh, traditional college? Is it boot camps? Is it, uh, you know, a hunger to acquire self-taught knowledge? Um, what type of credentials do you look for in candidates? Or do you think that Splunk values?
1: Tactically speaking, we're always going through some sort of an interview cycle. The biggest, the biggest thing that we are looking for is is hunger and that excitement to to do stuff and to make stuff. And, and that is, I would say, that is the number one priority. And then secondary from that is the demonstration of that hunger, whether it's by, you know, by people having worked in different organizations or by a person who is just starting out and they have, um, they have, uh, they have posted their code publicly somewhere or, or they have a portfolio or something and they can do a demo for us or, you know, and, and so that those, those two are the most important elements is the excitement to make or do. And then it's the excitement it's, or it's the demonstrated, uh, some, some demonstration of that. And of course it varies, right? If you're if you're applying for a senior leadership position, the demonstration has very different uh, sort of, uh, criteria than if you are a student intern who just got out of high school and and doing that but those are the biggest things that we look for and then then as a as a company too a lot of times when we're thinking of teams we're thinking of them as that as as diverse teams like for example in my own teams for example my my team is my teams are sort of sick of me talking about this football analogy constantly because it's it's i don't want a bunch of amazing quarterbacks on my team I, I need, I, you know, as a, as a strong unit, we need a lot of diversity and a lot of different sets of skills and each skill has its value uh, no, no, no matter where they fit within that roster, because together is, that is what, where the execution will happen. And of course we have Splunkers who have, you know, who have PhDs and things and have advanced degrees from top, you know, top-notch education institutions. And and then you have sort of Splunkers like me that went through this meandering career and uh, even in leadership positions that, Don't necessarily come, you know, have super advanced college educations or started their education late in life. It doesn't matter. It's it's the other two pieces around being hungry and about wanting to to make a difference.
0: And what about the uh, first month, the first ninety days after an individual is hired at Splunk? Are there any trends or patterns you see you have seen that uh, tend to lead to success?
1: Yeah, I think the. The biggest trend that I would highlight is, and this is something I'm very passionate about, is we like to do a thing that we call 30 and 30, which is meet 30 people at Splunk in your first 30 days here. And the way we like to build those rosters is there are people outside of the team that that one would be working on. So, for example, oftentimes if you're in, for example, if you're on this, or security engineering team, you may end up meeting people in marketing and and people in HR and people in finance and and, and people in the sales teams. It's, it's so and so you really and, and also people in other engineering teams and and designers and and, and so you kind of get a sense of community and a sense of organization and a sense of excitement of where you are, that you're part of a family. And, and I think that's, that to me, I would say is the number one trend. The second one is to use the product and try to use this amazingly powerful instrument that is Splunk technologies and the, the, all these different technologies that we have, whether it's Splunk Phantom or UPA or Enterprise Security or Splunk Enterprise or Splunk ITSI or, or, or the mobile apps and all these different things that we have is use these and, and and see well, what value it provides to you at a personal level or how it satisfies certain curiosities intellectually that you may have. So that's another thing. And the, and the third thing, just, you know, and, and these are not necessarily in order, but is, is that to read the customer stories, to see customer interviews, so you can feel the customer's passion about, about Splunk and how they use it, but also so you can appreciate what is it that we need to do for them to make things even better for them. Um, So those are the things I think that have a big impact. And when people go through these kinds of cycles, it really enables them and empowers them and gives them a sense of connectivity. And then in the sense that now they can start to solve problems for themselves and and, and grow together with others. So because then they kind of have the sense of, well, I have this interesting problem. I don't really know how to solve it. But I remember meeting that one person in a certain department who said that XYZ, you know, that they did or they were curious about maybe they can tell me something. And so that's, those are the things that make that make success.
0: I think that's exciting for anyone because uh, so often in life it can feel like we're you know struggling with something or that there are others who aren't like us. But when we get out there and meet a lot of people, uh, especially in a place where there's already a strong sense of community, we find that there are others you know struggling with the same challenges or um, going through what we've been through or whatever the case might be. Are there any stories? you know, you've been at Splunk uh, for, uh, I think eight years now, you said. I'm curious to know, are there any stories that are kind of like your favorite uh, stories about the culture or comp or any of the things you've learned along your way?
1: You know, I came to Splunk, this is really my first sort of commercial job, if you will, in an in a enterprise software company, at least, right? I've worked for other non-government organizations, but I came after being in a government organization for almost 12 years before I came to Splunk. And it was a very, worked in a very... Very A place that was doing amazing things, and but it was in a very different sort of cultural setup. The biggest thing for me at, at, at Splunk, the thing that I learned immediately, which is also the thing that attracted me because I was a customer as well before I was an employee, was this, this directness, or maybe directness sometimes as a negative connotation, is this openness that Splunk has always fostered without being rude. And, being, and, and just being sort of matter of fact at times when one needs to be matter of fact. So I'll give you a concrete example before I joined Splunk, which really attracted me to it, and then a concrete example of, of, uh, of something that happened while I was here. Um, the one about before joining Splunk was, was that I was on a call with technical support. I described my problem. The VP of engineering at the time said, that's on us. And that was it. I was like, seriously, you're not going to ask me to reboot my computer He's like, no, that you already told me you followed these things. It should not work that way. That's on us. And we might need a little bit of your help to reproduce this problem, but we'll, we'll work that problem. So to me, that's very important as because as a person who's, who's grew up in an environment of serving others and appreciating and respecting others, I thought here's a company that respects its customers and, and, and intelligence. And respects his customers, acumen, and that wants to solve problems. Problems happen all the time. It's not about whether you have a problem or not, it's how do you work the problem once it occurs. So to me, that was a big deal. Fast forward to being at Splunk. And even at Splunk, I've been in I've I've been on the marketing team, I've been in business development, I've been I've been an individual contributor as a chief security evangelist and 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 and, ran, and then now being the leader for the security research team. I've been in lots and lots of different teams. One of my one of my favorite examples was was in a you know this was almost like six years ago in a, in, a, in a marketing meeting where somebody was talking about a thing that we were going to take to 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 market and, and and release it at a major event and based on what they described, it didn't make sense to me. I raised my hand and I said, "I don't think that's the way it works and uh, I'm not talking negatively about this product, but it's I don't think this is actually going to execute like this. And the head of our chief marketing officer at the time, he stopped the meeting. He looked at me and he looked at the person who was presenting at this time. I was a very junior person in the company and, and looked at this other very senior person at the company and said, is he right? And the senior person kind of shuffled around and, uh, and, and our CMO said, well then we need to dig into this before we continue any further. So that is a very empowering thing where, where, you know, Somebody could have said, that's not your job, that's not your position, you're not responsible for that, you're new, what are you talking about, and just overpower this with, with hierarchies, that we always encourage the voice of the individual who, in a well-meaning way, says, maybe we ought to take another look. And, and so I think that's a very part and parcel of the culture, and of course, we have a lot of things around, we have a lot of fun, and we do creative things, but I think it's that enabling, uh, I, I call it psychological safety in a, in, in a group setting. Uh, which is what Splunk fosters for me. And I've always been, it's been a privilege. And that's what I try to pass on and, and develop the culture of my teams in a similar way and encourage those kinds of behaviors. I've had my own junior engineers challenge me sometimes in a room full of people. And the gut reaction is not to say, how dare you? Do you know who I am? The gut reaction is, huh, that's an interesting point. What would happen in your mind because of what I just said? So now we have immediately taken it to a problem space rather than saying, well, you said this and I said that. It's just, we said, well, what would happen? And, and, and that, that creates a, a very different style of conversation.
0: I think that's fascinating. And at the end of the day, I mean, innovation is not going to come from an environment where you're not psychologically safe. It's, I mean, maybe it does uh, occasionally, but not in a predictable way. I'm curious, Monzi. do you do any type of uh, role playing with new team members so they can kind of like practice the skill?
1: We are very deliberate with our teams in terms of reinforcing and reminding each other. I mean, for example, this word psychological safety is part of the team's vernacular Uh, to the point that at one time in one of a very spirited conversation, one one of the team members said, I'm not feeling psychologically safe right now. And we said, okay, time out. Everybody stop. So it's, 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 part, of the, it's part of our culture and, and, it's, and it's part of the team. And it's up to the leaders really, right? How we encourage, how we encourage our teams kind of go through these cycles. Like we're, we're going to have a, uh, an, an offsite here soon. And every offsite, we kind of start with reminding ourselves of those things. That this is what we agreed on as a team. Not every team's culture is going to be slightly different. And that's important. Uh, but I think what, uh, the, the thing that we like to do is remind ourselves of what are the things that we agreed upon and be open to saying, well, we, we agreed upon this. We did X, Y, Z things. What should we be doing? Not in terms of, you know, getting sad about something that didn't work or critiquing something that was suboptimal, but talking in terms of what do we do next? And I think, uh, and a lot of it just has to happen by example. I think, uh, it's one thing to lecture somebody about psychological safety and the importance of, uh, of accountability. And it's another to see that in action, um, and, uh, and ask other people, like, how do you see yourself working in this environment and, and hanging out and spending time in non-transactional ways outside of, uh, outside of the work. Like my teams are very distributed. And so we spend a lot of time, you know, on Slack channels or doing video calls and things like that. So everybody can kind of get this feeling of connectivity and and practicing and seeing each other in action.
0: Monzi, you mentioned it earlier, you were talking about Conf. I've heard a lot about it. Never been, not yet. Uh, hopefully we'll make it out to the next one. What are you most excited about uh, at Conf? Is it a speaker? Is it getting to meet everyone? What's that experience like and what are you looking forward to?
1: Conf usually for us oftentimes is sort of a gift unwrapping party in the sense that, you know, the teams have been working on a number of different things. We make some of our, we don't necessarily sandbag back things, but we make some of our biggest product announcements uh, and initiative announcements and directional announcements at .conf. Uh, and so that's a great opportunity to kind of share with the broader Splunk community whose passion is just like almost going in front of you know 15,000 friends and saying hey look this is the thing that I was working so hard with last year and I think it's gonna help in this way and they get excited and then you know we go off and talk about it and then they give us more ideas and say oh the thing that you showed it looks like this and is it gonna do this or is it gonna do that and and it's not like we make these things in a vacuum and you know we do a lot of data testing and, and, and customer validation during the development processes but when when people see things, something concrete in front of them, they can touch it and they can test it They give us feedback. To me, that sort of gift unwrapping party is just amazing. The other thing is having been at Splunk for so long and not having been in this industry for some time, it's such a pleasure to meet old friends and old members of the community. I mean, we're all sort of growing up and, you know, life changes and things happen somebody has a kid or something else or somebody changes jobs and not did this you know some amazing thing that they may have accomplished and and so it's it we spend a lot of kind of late night hangout time and and learning and getting together and 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 just and just reconnecting with a with a number of different people face to face so uh, both from a product point of view and and from a customer validation point of view it's awesome and and it's it's and it's really amazing to hear customer speakers talk about you know what they do like the example that I shared with you about, about elevators or or there's a the customers who, who who are doing amazing things with, in computer security operations, where they're, you know, taking things from that would used to take them days and days of time down to to uh, to sub minutes right, to execute those same kinds of things using Splunk with more confidence. And so it's like it's all, it's it's a combination of all of those things.
0: That's exciting. And Manzi, uh, are there any uh, final thoughts about data or? Uh, the future of technology you'd like to leave our listeners with?
1: I think the biggest thing is, is, to, is to look at data and, as, as a, and really to look at Splunk in that spirit, in, in, in a related spirit, to look at it from the lens of, of a tremendous opportunity. I mean, it really is, data is really is the oxygen, and, and the more people get exposed to the data, The more people can tinker with it, the more people can exert their intuition and their ideas on that data, the more questions they can ask. I think the better society is gonna be and I think the better businesses are going to benefit from it. Data is not just for data scientists or computer scientists. That's why Splunk has always had this mantra of make machine data accessible, usable, and valuable for everybody. Because that's how we're gonna that's how we're going
0: to get better. Manzi, thanks so much for joining us and being generous with your time and everybody listening. We'll see you next time.
1: Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Have a great day.
0: Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, they're a customer times five, Twilio and Katera, who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right.